Welcome to Coffee House. We have 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. I'm just going to come out and say it. From the jump, this is the most important book for young men to read, and uh, other men as well, that I can think of. It's calibrated to our modern times with the topics it chooses and the style of its telling. It kind of puts a contemporary anchor on wisdom traditions, you know, from antiquity. And it has a lot of newer stuff and newer ideas mixed in. So it's just, I mean, it's all around an important thing, an important way to approach a lot of these topics, and an important way to advertise these memes to young men who are struggling with a lot of the issues that are dealt with in this book. So I just want to make sure that that's up front and out there and clear. As always, we will go through the contents of the book with a little editorializing along the way. We'll talk about an analysis which kind of tries to look at the quality overall of the book and some of the big ideas from it. And then we'll go into some big picture stuff to put it in the context of what we have read so far and what we know and where this civilization needs to go. So, okay, moving on to the contents. 12 Rules for Life. This is going to be in two parts. We're going to do Rules 1 through 6 and then 7 through 12 because these things are just getting too massive. As many of you might have noticed, I wasn't able to upload the episode about the article, The 30 Tyrants, which was a very important article. I wasn't able to do that on Saturday uh, because I had used up all of my bandwidth on all the massive episodes before that. So it, it finally got uploaded on Monday, and now we're working on this one. And now I'm just extending this one with this explanation. So let's get on to the contents. One, stand up straight with your shoulders back. And this is the one, the famous or infamous lobster talk, which I absolutely loved. It was so important to put this foot forward right away and establish this idea. But so the lobsters, they are much more like you than you realize. Lobsters themselves are obsessed with status and position. They will defend high quality territory. They have differing levels of conflict, you know, so just like we humans, if we get into a conflict, it might just get into a shoving match. That's one level or, you know, verbal altercation into shoving match, into throwing the fists, into adding groin shots, into using weapons, all those various steps. But lobsters have the same thing when it comes to their fighting, that they'll have these kind of thresholds for getting into these conflicts all the way up to the violent murder of each other. And they have this particular biological situation here. When the dominant lobster is defeated, his brain apparently dissolves and he develops this subordinate brain. So he develops a new brain in response to what has happened externally. That is incredible. I mean, to some degree, that must be kind of what happens, you know, some kind of physical change, a phenotypic response to what happens on the outside, just like if you get a cut or something like that. It probably happens with the brain in a similar way, although it must be more resilient. But for your whole brain to dissolve and just develop a new brain, I mean, that's insanity. A little tidbit here, I'm not sure how this fits in the context, but uh, I thought it was interesting, is that 90% of our communication is done with 500 words. Being the preternatural vocabulary gourmand, I use many, many more words than 500, but that is apparently how most of us communicate with those 500 words. Then, okay, we switch back into the Matthew principle, which is related to the lobster. So the Matthew principle talks about the harshest thing that Jesus ever said about how the wealthiest will get more and the poorest and more, most pathetic will get even more pathetic. I can't remember the specific quote in Matthew, but it's like that. So it's like, if you've got stuff, you're going to get even more. If you don't have anything, even that which you have is going to be taken from you. 
But so as it applies to lobsters, that's kind of how it is. So the the highest up, the alpha of the alphas, is the one who gets all the women, all the food, all the best places. And the lowest of low get even what they have taken from them. But Peterson points this out to establish this very important idea is that hierarchy is built in from our deep history. And so to just have this weird fit about it now in this phase of our history is missing the point and not paying attention to what's been going on here. So hierarchies, they make things very stable. When a strong lobster is about to get into a conflict with a weaker lobster, in many cases, the strong one can just wiggle their antennae and they'll be able to defeat rivals. The rivals will shirk in obscurity and not challenge them to a physical, actual physical fight. So that's an element of stability that you get from hierarchies. Females outsource their search for mates in hierarchies. So they look who, for who's at the top of hierarchies and that's how they find their mates. And long-term, the long-term domination and sitting atop the hierarchy can't just be physical prowess. It has to be engaging other aspects of socialization to be able to maintain that hierarchy. So this idea is 350 million years old. At least, that's how long lobsters have been around. But effectively, the dominance hierarchy has been around forever, for as long as there's been life. So then we get an, we've got an introduction to the idea of chaos and order, which will be talked about in detail later. I think this might be the next chapter. And a hierarchy itself is a near eternal aspect of the environment. It's older than the trees. Anyway, so there's some talk about serotonin and how important that is for both good and bad on both sides. You know, the Matthew principle on this too is that your serotonin level can dramatically affect if you're good, you're going to get even better and better. If you're bad, you're going to get even worse and worse. And then he brings up some psychological conditions like agoraphobia and PTSD and points out that there's very little difference between capacity for mayhem and destruction and strength of character. I love this because you've got this nice little balance that will keep coming up throughout the book where it talks about there is this potential for destruction that's concomitant with being kind of emotionally competent for living in the world. <laughs> so so you have that and you see that of course in a lot of our, our films, of course, when it comes to entertainment, that that whole segment of society is just being obliterated right now. I heard that the Golden Globes, is that the one that just went off? You know, I haven't paid attention to any of them. I haven't seen hardly any movies, but I think the viewership dropped by like 60% this year after it had been dropping dramatically. It just, it doesn't feel like movies mean anything anymore. But anyway, so you see this a lot in the movies where you have this affinity for both sides when it comes to, you know, chaos and order, when it comes to the capacity for mayhem and destruction and strength of character. All those things are necessary. And I wonder if that's uh, something that's kind of reflected in the idea of God in general being such a terrible, powerful force, but also being the most perfect good thing. But some important things here is that if you present yourself as defeated, people will react to you as if you are losing. You have to voluntarily accept the burden of being. You should speak your mind, put your desires forward as if you had a right to them, and dare to be dangerous. So that's uh, important stuff from rule number one. Rule number two, treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. He brings up this idea of subjective pain and that the unique death of your father is different categorically from the objective death on the hospital roll of your father. 
And this is one thing that I think Peterson brings up kind of a lot. You know, it can be frustrating at times because one of the big takedowns of modern civilization, especially in the West, is this idea that the subjective is so important, that your subjective experience, your personal experience is such an important thing. Peterson, of course, is looking at it from a clinical therapy perspective. So he's thinking this is something that he has to think deeply about all the time is what is the subjective pain? What is the individual experience and how do we figure that out? But from a wider context, we have to think about, okay, when you start slathering the rest of the world with your subjectivity, then what are you losing behind it? But moving on from there, we have this bigger explanation of this idea of order and chaos. Order being male archetype, chaos being a female archetype. Didn't we just talk about male and female archetypes? I think it was in the discussion for Mary, right? The anti-Mary exposed. I think we talked about that. Anyway, oh, this is a fantastic idea too. I, I just, there's so many good things in here. So order and chaos are not perceived objectively and then personified. That's something to keep in mind when it comes to trying to figure anything out, is that that's not what our brains are designed to do. It, they're not designed to go find something objectively, understand it, and then try to add meaning to it. We see what things mean just as fast or faster as we see what they are. We, that's what we do. We just attribute meaning. We have the hyperactive agency detector where we're attributing meaning to everything that's out there. Of course, male and female have been around for a billion years, <laughs> been, been around a long time. It says in the book that the division of life into sexes occurred before multicellular animals. I did not fact check that statement, <laughs> and I don't know enough about biology to be able to challenge it. So... Male order, that's the idea. It's male order. It can be destructive. Just look at something like the concentration camps. Those are very orderly and they're very destructive. Female chaos, they contribute to creation and creativity, but they can also cause all sorts of problems and accidents and things. Sometimes I put notes in here and I can't remember, I think I'm just putting a little tidbit and I can't remember how they tie into everything. But so women are highly selective when it comes to finding dates. On dating sites, they actually rank 85% of men below average attractiveness. So it's the reverse Lake Wobegon. <laughs> they are saying that 85% of men are below average of attractiveness. That's pretty rough. But anyway, you see this idea of order and chaos everywhere. So in Osiris and Isis, they're depicted as twin cobras with tails knotted together. They're Egyptian gods. And Osiris is the god of state, and Isis is the goddess of the underworld. And you see the world and underworld depicted in Disney all the time. Peterson loves Disney. And even I, you know, I've seen Disney movies a million times. And we had a whole series where we talked deeply about them. But we talked about them in the, like, mechanics of storytelling. We didn't talk about them in the deep thematic roots that Jordan Peterson discusses them in, which is fantastic. So the thing to bring up here is that we're adapted not to the objects, but to the meta-reality of order and chaos. That's what we're adapted to, and that's what we're looking at. And that's why we have so many representations all over the place of this, this thing. And that's why our psyches are so built on these ideas. No matter where we are, there are some things we can know and predict and some things we don't know and can't predict. So you have that idea of order and chaos that's always at play with each other. Whatever we're doing, wherever we are, that's what we're running into. Okay, and I'm not sure why this is here, because I think it comes up later in another one of the chapters when he talks about child-rearing specifically, but this idea that it's much better to render those in your care competent than to protect them. Oh, I think this chapter is specifically about oh, responsible, who you're responsible for helping. Okay, so it makes sense. But it, like I said, it's much better to render those in your care competent than it is to protect them, because if you just protect them and that's all you do, then you would, it would result in permanent human infantilism. Okay, rule number three. Make friends with people who want the best for you. 
So this is about friends, and he references Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky, in which there's a woman. So this man saves this woman, or pretends to save this woman, who's on the road to prostitution. And it turns out, you find out, he's not really helping her. He's trying to get something out of it, and it turns into you standing next to someone who's worse than you, just to make yourself look or feel better, and that's not friendship. Things fall apart of their own accord, but the sins of men speed their degeneration. It's much more difficult to extract someone from a chasm than lift them from a ditch. I feel like sometimes I'm just sitting in Thus Spake Zarathustra, and that's how I'm, I'm speaking this thing. I should offer more context to this stuff, but I did not. And he references Rogers, Carl Rogers. Of course, we read two of his books. We liked one much more than the other. But Rogers believed the desire to improve was a precondition for uh, progress in the therapeutic situation and likely just in life in general. If you want to help somebody, it's probably going to be a precursor that they have to want to be helped. And here's a, tidbit, here's a rule or a test for determining whether you should be friends with somebody. If you have a friend whose friendship you wouldn't recommend to your sister or father or son, why would you have such a friend for yourself? You want to find people who aim up, who are, are trying to get somewhere, who want to make the world a better place. It's a good thing to choose people who are good for you. That's not a selfish thing, that's a good thing for everybody. People whose lives would be improved if they saw your life improve, so you have similar goals and aims, and who would support your upward aim, and who won't tolerate your cynicism and destructiveness. And they will encourage you when you do good for yourself and others and punish you carefully when you do not. So that's an important way to look at how to make friends here. Rule number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. And this is something that's close to my heart. It was easier to be good at something when we lived in small local communities. I used to be just the Mortal Kombat goat until I started seeing it on YouTube. Same with Tetris Attack, <laughs> although I'm still pretty high up on that one. What you aim at determines what you see. And here he references the often, I think, over-referenced uh, gorilla basketball video. For anybody who hasn't seen this, there is a video where you watch it, there are a bunch of people, you're supposed to count the basketballs, there are a bunch of people throwing basketballs to each other, you're supposed to count how many times they're passed, and a guy in a gorilla suit walks out in the middle and does like a little dance and stuff in the middle of this video while you're trying to count these things, and then walks off. Well, about 50% of the people who watch this video will not notice that the guy walked out in a gorilla costume, <laughs> because they are so focused on trying to count that they don't even notice it. And what Peterson points out is that vision is expensive. You have a small, focused, high-definition area, and you ignore the rest when you're trying to use your vision. And the same thing happens with everything else that you have. It's trying to efficiently use your resources. So in your brain, it does the same thing. That's how you deal with complexity, is that you cut out most of what's out there and just focus on the things that are necessary. And that's one thing that we use to try to reason about everything else now, you know, when it comes to politics or anything else. We must shepherd those limited resources carefully. And here's another one where he points out that religions have to be dogmatic. They must be. They're the domain of ultimate value. And I think he's got... I remember I saw him talking to Sam Harris, who is now a douchebag, by the way. Uh, I saw him talking to Sam Harris, and they were talking about this idea that you might say that you're an atheist, but you're not an atheist in your actions and what you do and how you practice. And those likely betray much more of what you actually believe than whatever you're saying at this particular moment. And I tend to agree now on this point. I think that we are, and this is the next thing that he says, <laughs> I was just about to say it myself, uh, you are too complex to understand yourself. There's too much complexity in there for you to just be able to consciously delineate ex explicitly what you are in all your parts. So it's likely the case that what you act out is more what you believe than what you say you do.
And he suggests at the end of this chapter that what you should do if you want to, in most of the chapters, this is what he does. He'll lay all this stuff out and then at the end he gives you some suggestions on what you should do. But in this one, the one that is about comparing yourself to who you were yesterday and not who someone else is today, is that you should find something that you can fix and fix it. Something small even. So something like if there's a stack of papers, I think is the example he uses, that you should do something with, then just do it. Every day you should find something that you can fix and fix it. Cumulatively, it will make things better and eventually you're gonna get better at it and that's that's the way to start okay rule number five don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them this was a chunky chapter and it had a lot of good stuff in it so apparently a member of the chinese dynasty one of the chinese dynasties had 1.5 million descendants so he's got a bit of a, a lead on me genghis khan apparently fathered eight percent of the men in central asia which is amazing it's not for the best that all human corruption is laid at society's feet. This is an important idea here because we are talking about the rearing of individuals and how you create them and make them into good people. So if only society is corrupt and not individuals, where did the corruption originate is the question. Even more problematic is insistence that all individual problems, no matter how rare, must be solved by social restructuring, no matter how radical. So we have to be careful about that in saying that individual failures are somehow the responsibility of society and society must do something or affect change or be something else to be able to cater to that one individual. And before we start cutting out large chunks of society or outlawing this or outlawing that, we have to realize that we don't sufficiently understand what works in society or what things do in society to be able to jettison large chunks of it. Such as things like the liberalization of divorce. It's something that we might not realize what effects that actually has, you know, on children and child rearing and how much it's going to increase things like crime rates and uh, school dropouts and all that sort of thing. Okay, and speaking of children, he goes into this uh, discussion about what parents need to be doing and what their kind of posture toward their children need to be. And he suggests that parents trying to be friends with their children to avoid conflict is a very bad thing. That it's an act of responsibility to discipline a child. And parents who try to avoid placing these restrictions on their children is, it's out of laziness. So children, apparently, will do anything that will garner attention, provide power, or let them avoid trying something new. They're perfectly willing to provoke adults. And violence, whether in children or adults, is easy and it's the default. Peace is the thing that's hard. Just like why people suffer from anxiety is not the mystery, how they ever don't is the mystery. <laughs> Apparently two-year-olds are the most violent people, and infants, this is an excellent image to have, is that infants are like blind people searching for a wall. And anger crying is apparently different <laughs> from regular crying, like hurt crying, and it's an act of dominance that children are trying out on their parents. But modern parents are terrified of the words discipline and punish. B.F. Skinner specifically talked about how positive reinforcement is hard and the pain is more potent than pleasure. So you can try as a parent to avoid being the bad guy in the short term, but long term, it's a bad idea. A child needs adult authority because children are dependent and they must be properly taught by the age of four. You have a very short window to make sure that they are properly socialized to do the right things. And the parent authority is not based on power, but it's based on competence. Hierarchies that are based on power are tyrannical and illegitimate. So we've got a couple of ideas when it comes to dealing with children. You want to limit the rules and you want to use the minimum necessary force to get things across. So some tips that might be something that I put on a wall in a kid's room at some point. Do not bite or kick except in self-defense. Do not torture other children. Eat in a civilized and thankful manner. Learn to share so other kids will play with you. Pay attention to adults. 
Go to sleep properly and peacefully. Take care of your belongings and be thankful for them. Be good company and act as though you're happy to be around. Apparently timeouts are effective. You know, leaving a kid by themselves to think about what they've done are effective. Now, I had heard and I had read some things. I'm not sure it's from the Carl Rogers School of Dealing with Children, but that it's best to actually stay with your kid during a timeout as opposed to leaving them alone for psychological reasons, but I I'm not sure this is something that I'm going to have to I'm going to have to determine because I don't want my kid to be a little weakling. So you might have to use physical restraint in some cases. Jordan Peterson didn't have some kind of a priori thing against spanking or just physical restraint in general because if you don't use the right kind of force, if you're not thinking it through, then someone else in their future might use that physical force and it might be much worse. And remember, the parents can be vengeful and can be resentful of their children, so that's something that they have to take into account. Parents have a duty, though, to act as proxies of the real world. That's what you're getting them ready for. So you have to act as a proxy of the real world in this kind of experimental crucible to get those children ready for it. It's the duty of parents to make children desirable. Proper three-year-old is polite and engaging. And parents need to take responsibility when they do wrong and learn to do better. So rule number six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. This is probably the most difficult one for anybody. How on earth do you set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world? Most of what we do is criticize the world because it takes the onus off of us. So he brings up school shootings and talks about that descent into the temptation of questioning being in general and how you have to blame something. He references Tolstoy, who offers a few alternatives for dealing with the the terrible, fallen, evil corruption of the world. You can retreat into childlike ignorance. You can pursue meaningless pleasure. You can continue to drag on in a life knowing nothing will come of it. Or you can destroy that life once you realize it's meaningless. And then he references Cain and Abel and the story of Cain and Abel and how Cain killed God's favorite to spite God. Then he discusses the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn and how it finally destroyed communism intellectually. It was banned in the Soviet Union, of course. It was smuggled to the West and eventually made its way back into the Soviet Union. And once it was disseminated throughout that population, then there was no more defending communism. But he finally gets to the point that if you are suffering, that's the norm. If it's becoming unbearable, you have to take responsibility and you have to clean up your life. Stop doing what you know is wrong. I think this is such a profound idea that needs to be understood and repeated. Stop doing what you know is wrong. So many of us, we know what's wrong. We know we shouldn't be doing the thing that we do, we're doing, but we do it anyway. And he says specifically, don't waste time on questioning why you know it's wrong. Just stop doing it. In just an interpersonal relationship, when I'm talking to somebody, where I'm like, okay, I shouldn't be using this kind of manipulative language to try to get something in the short term right now. I should be better about the way that I'm conversing with this person. I know it's wrong, but I still do it anyway. So this is something that I think is is really important. Stop. Start to stop doing what you know is wrong. Say yes only to things that make you strong. Don't blame others. If you cannot bring peace to your household, how dare you try to rule a city? Over months and years, your life will become simpler. You will have no more bitterness and conceit. Your life will merely be tragic instead of hellish. (laughs) Who knows what existence might be like, however, if we all decide to strive for the best. So that was a meaty book. We're already at like half an hour, of course, even though I wanted to avoid that. But we are moving into the analysis now. 
as I said, everybody should read it. It's got a lot of excellent ideas, and it can absolutely help so many kids, men especially right now, formulate this architecture of meaning that can keep them motivated and keep them in a healthy position for the rest of their lives. It's so important, especially right now, when they're just being trashed from every angle, that they have something like this. I can see why people would be thirsty for this, and I absolutely recommend that they read it. Starting with the lobsters was beautiful and memorable. I love lobster just in general. Uh, I'll still eat them even though I know a little bit more about them. But it sets up such an important question. You know, our deep roots are vital to our happiness and survival. Understanding those deep roots and not trying to go against the grain when it comes to them. You know, we'll see in later chapters how we talk about how a lot of those natural impulses are sublimated to be used in a more positive and sophisticated way. And that's something that we can do with all of these instincts and intuitions. But just ignoring them and and playing this weird religious game related to it, uh, that's completely wrong. That's something that we're doing right now under the aegis of progressivism. So my favorite idea is I love the order and chaos dichotomy. It's such a great thing to think about and such a great way to try to understand why we do what we do. So I love that. And the fact that we see meaning first and not objective reality, I mean, absolutely. That's the thing that we do. We see meaning in everything, and that's where we start. And then we try to piece our way backwards to get to some kind of objective reality out there. And it's very difficult with our very limited primate brains. So big picture-wise, I really think that this kind of thinking can be a salvation for young men, especially right now. They have to be pushed farther than this or further than this so that they can get to a more active point than just trying to kind of piece together (laughs) their immediate life. (laughs) But this is an excellent, fantastic start. Right now, we have this huge vacuum of power that's currently being filled by progressivism and, you know, young men who are trying different strategies, you know, to get laid because what else are you going to do? A lot of them are using the strategy of trying to placate all the women who are taking this alpha role now, saying that we have to be progressive, we have to think in these ways, you have to be a feminist, and then she hates him on the other end because he's so weak and pathetic and she doesn't understand why, he doesn't understand why, that they're just trying all these different strategies (laughs) to try to move on with their lives. Uh, Luckily, they're much less likely to reproduce, so we shouldn't have to worry about it for too many generations, but... There's this vacuum of power, and it's something that needs to be stepped into by kind of a new breed of young men who are capable of understanding all these ideas and capable of of taking the right step forward. So, and that's not to exclude women, of course. If you saw my anti-Mare Exposed discussion, you would see what I think about how all that shakes out. Uh, So I will leave it there. That was part one of this. We're going to do part two. We'll read his next book. But before that, we're going to do that propaganda book that I talked about by, what's his name? Was that by Bernays? Who was that by? I can't remember now. Uh, But we'll do that one after we do part two of this. And we'll have something in the middle there. Uh, Hopefully we can keep it going. I can get on the proper damn schedule. (laughs) I can do that and just be on it. Because it's not right now. I'm a little off still. And just trying to get these books read and get these episodes out and all that stuff is just... It's not falling into place as it should just yet, but it will. So anybody who's listening, thank you very much, anybody who got here, and I will see you on the next one. This is Coffee House. Bye. (laughs) 